welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So before we start, I wanted to say a great big thank you to all of you that have supported the show via Patreon. Your contribution is really appreciated and will help ensure the podcast is free, accessible to all and ad-free. And also that the episodes are regular, something like an episode every week or two. So if you'd like to support the show for as little as a pound, a dollar or a euro per episode, then please visit patreon.com forward slash the words matter podcast. So this is the first episode of the Qualitative Research series, where my guests and I fly above to get a broad overview of qualitative research, but then also land on areas to get a more detailed sense of the different theories, methodologies, and methods of qualitative research. And in addition to today's episode, the conversations coming up include Grounded Theory with Professors Melanie Burks and Jane Mills, Phenomenology with Dr. Perio Vuskowski, thematic analysis with Dr. Victoria Clark, critical and post-qualitative approaches with Dr. Jenny Setchell, conversation analysis with Dr. Charlotte Albury, and there'll be a final special qualitative research Ask Us Anything episode with Professor Dave Nichols. Dave and I will be discussing and answering your questions on any areas of qualitative research, so please send in your questions to me by the 25th of June. And you can find me on any of the major social media platforms, either tweet me directly or publicly or Instagram me or send me a message over Facebook. So in this first episode of the Qualitative Research series, I'm speaking with Perry Tuttleman. Perry is a PhD candidate in clinical psychology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. Her research is focused on understanding the pain experiences of children with cancer across the disease trajectory. And she's published several qualitative studies that explore the lived experience of patients, families and healthcare providers in the areas of pain and serious illness. She actively mentors graduate students interested in qualitative methods and recently co-guest edited a special issue on qualitative research and pain for the Canadian Journal of Pain. And in the show notes I've linked Perry's editorial and also a series of webinar videos from Perry and also the other contributors to the special issue. So in this episode, we speak about Perry's journey into qualitative research from her background as a psychologist trained in quantitative research methods. We discuss what qualitative research is and what it isn't, and that it's more than just the type of data collected. We talk about qualitative research as a heterogeneous family of methodologies, each with different philosophical, historical and theoretical backgrounds, and underpinnings, and we discuss the challenges that this diversity can bring, but also the richness, flexibility, and utility of qualitative approaches. And we touch on the different foundational assumptions of qualitative research, such as views on knowledge, reality, and truth, and how these support, justify, and inform the research methods. And we locate qualitative research in the context of evidence-based practice, and what it offers and where it fits. And finally, we talk about the role, value and contribution of qualitative research for generating knowledge about all aspects of pain and pain management. 
So this was such an enjoyable discussion with Perry and the perfect opener for the series. Hearing Perry's journey into qualitative research, her early challenges and frustrations, and how she is now using qualitative approaches really resonates with my own experiences and I'm sure many of you have had to grapple with the initial discomfort of stepping into a different research paradigm. So it's great to share this and introduce some of the key aspects of qualitative research and also talk through the valuable contribution that qualitative research can make to building a rounded and relevant evidence base to support clinical practice. So I bring you Perry Tuttleman. Perry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So this is a real long time coming, this series of episodes that I'm doing on qualitative research. And I think you're going to be the first. So so congratulations to that. Thank you. It's really an honor. And, and looking at the other lineup of, of speakers, I feel really honored to be included in this series. And really, I think what I want all the episodes to do is to... Well, I'm thinking back when I was embarking on my PhD and I came as pretty much all of us, as you, you and I were talking offline, coming from a quantitative background and you decide to do some qualitative work. And this, for me, it was 10, 12 years ago for my PhD, but there wasn't, there certainly wasn't any podcast around the qualitative research and there might have been some old grainy videos on YouTube and just lots and lots of books which were helpful, but perhaps not hopefully as engaging as the conversation we're about to have. Absolutely. I think I think this is helpful in getting kind of that raw ground level experience and, and conversation about what qualitative research is, what it isn't, what some of the controversies are. And I think those are things that are often missed, you know, in those more theoretical publications. And this is the practical stuff um, that people need to know in order to kind of get started. For sure. And I think we need to introduce you first. But before we do, I also want to say that about clinicians, you know, that that clinicians that are confronted with a qualitative study and need to make some kind of sense of it and make some kind of judgment about, well, what kind of knowledge is this? What kind of evidence is this? And how am I supposed to relate it to the patients that I see? So hopefully clinicians listening will have greater confidence to utilize some of this qualitative evidence rather than just sticking with the quant, the quant stuff, which we know doesn't map to individual cases because they're from large populations. Exactly. I, I've done a bit of thinking, you know, on how qualitative research maps on to evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice. And so perhaps that's something we can touch on. Brilliant. Well, before we do, why don't you say a little bit about yourself, your academic background and your journey into qualitative research? Yeah, it, it is quite the journey. Um, so I'm just finishing my PhD in clinical psychology at Dalhousie University, which is in Halifax, Canada. And I'm supervised by Dr. Christine Chambers. And, and like you kind of said, you know, my training background has predominantly been in um, quantitative methods. Um, my research has been focused on pain, mostly in childhood cancer across the disease trajectory. And, you know, my work so far has really been about understanding the prevalence and the characteristics of cancer-related pain. But when I was starting my dissertation, uh, which was focused specifically on pain after cancer treatment had finished on pain and cancer survivorship, there was such little research in the area that it was hard to even figure out like what kind of quantitative study, you know, would I start in that area. So I thought it was important to start with a qualitative study. And at that point, 
qualitative research was this black box of, you know, something unknown to me. Um, and so I started reading and exploring and, and sought mentorship in the area. I worked really closely with Robin Urquhart here at Dalhousie to learn qualitative methods. And as I was learning, I felt quite discouraged and frustrated because for oh, quite a few reasons, but um, there's, there's really a lack of qualitative research published in pain journals, which is the area that I'm in. Um, and, and there's quite a bit of inconsistency, you know, between what I was taught to be rigorous, high quality, qualitative research. So rich, thick descriptions, small samples, theoretical, you know, lenses, and then, you know, what reviewers and editors would come back to say on the papers, you know, it's not valid, the samples are too small, you didn't, um, you know, recruit until saturation. <laughs> so I was feeling quite frustrated. So, you know, with the support of my supervisor, I reached out um, to the editor in chief of the Canadian Journal of Pain, Dr. Joel Katz, to see if he might be interested in um, having uh, us co-edit um, a special issue on qualitative research in pain, where we could really highlight these high quality, novel, rich types of papers that don't often, you know, get into medical type journals. And he was really keen on the idea. So Dr. Fiona Webster, Western University and I co-guest edited um, that special issue where I learned a tremendous amount. And the rest is kind of history. I, I've done quite a bit of work using interpretive phenomenological analysis to understand pain and survivorship, but have also dabbled in other areas like qualitative description. That's a super interesting journey. I can't think of a better way to immerse yourself in qualitative research or at least learn about it than writing an editorial summarizing the qualitative papers that were in that edition. And that's, that's how I came to know your work was that somewhere on Twitter, must have been a year or so ago now, you did a series of videos from, I'm assuming some of the speakers that published in the special edition, right? That they were presenting their qualitative work and you were kind of hosting it and talking about the stuff that you were doing. And I was just like, wow, you know, there's, there's kind of visual stuff on YouTube and on Twitter about qualitative work. And you presented it so clearly and simply and coherently that, yeah, hence I had to come and get you on the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you saw it and that you, you know, viewed it so positively. We, we had, I believe, seven authors um, publish empirical articles in the special issue. And then we hosted a webinar um, to have them kind of showcase uh, their work. And, and also it was a chance for Fiona and I to talk a bit about some of these controversies and misconceptions about qualitative mm. research and pain um, and to hopefully you know, start, start a discussion about this and, and increase, you know, the acceptance and kind of the popularity of this work in, in the pain field. Is that webinar still floating around somewhere? It is. I'll certainly link those, those webinars and those videos in the show notes. because They were super helpful. Oh, that would be, that'd be awesome. I think maybe we could both try and grapple with the question of what is qualitative research. And I've certainly got my own thoughts about it, but you're the guest and I want to hear your thoughts about what, and I think, you know, recognizing that trying to define anything is problematic when taking a relativist, subjectivist view, like there aren't any hard definitions. But when we talk about qualitative research, what are some of the features or attributes or characteristics of qual research, which perhaps differentiate it from quantitative approaches? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked this question because it's, I think, really at the core of what sets up the rest of what we're going to talk about today. And as I said, when I was starting my journey into qualitative research, I, I just saw qualitative as this black box of qualitative, and it must mean interviews or open-ended questions or, or something like that. But it's really a lot deeper. Um, and so I think kind of a nice way to describe it is that qualitative research you know, it really refers to a family of methodologies that focuses on understanding like meaning and interpretation of experience. And it has distinct epistemological and ontological assumptions, um, you know, which is kind of like the idea of what knowledge and reality are and how they can be understood. So from a quantitative lens, um, you know, quantitative research is really founded on this idea that there is one single objective reality or truth that can be observed or measured. And qualitative really takes, you know, a different stance on this, you know, that there's no one absolute truth, but that there's this narrative truth or interpretation that's based on context. And so I, I think that's a nice way to kind of contrast the two, because it highlights that we're working with two completely different sets of logic here in terms of what knowledge represents. And I think it also highlights, you know, how problematic it then is to apply a set of criteria, you know, from quantitative research to qualitative research or vice versa. They're just completely different and, and that's okay. You summed it up really nicely that to understand the techniques or methods in both qualitative and quantitative research, there are reasons why those, those methods are done. So there's a reason why in a randomized controlled trial that there's blinding and they're controlling for various confounders and the samplings quite different to qualitative research and likewise with qualitative research the methods which are involved in a qual study they're all informed by a particular view by a particular position on as you said reality and knowledge which is why it's okay to have six people in a qualitative study and there's no logical inconsistency that that you're not looking to generalize you've got different thoughts around causation and you're not necessarily interested in causation so i, I suppose I can, if we were going to but learning point one, if you like, for listeners would be to to make sense of the qualitative methods and what they're about is to appreciate the underlying philosophy which drives those methods. Absolutely. And I think that that is something that I think a lot of people who are new to qualitative research struggle to kind of grasp is this idea that you know, qualitative research isn't just qualitative research. It's more of an umbrella term for different types of paradigms and methodologies, you know, like grounded theory or phenomenology or qualitative description, which all have different theoretical lenses. And there's even subtypes under each one. Um, and, you know, they all kind of lay that theoretical groundwork that um, stipulates how many participants you'll need, you know, what types of date methods of data collection you're going to yeah. use. Um, and so it's important to kind of make sure that you have that lens um, and that you're not just, you know, saying that you're going to do a qualitative study. What kind? But it does make it quite impenetrable, doesn't it? The fact that it, it's just confusing that you've got this group of research called qualitative methodologies. But when you dive down into the detail, and the epistemological detail, they can be quite different that, you know, as a discourse analyst versus a grounded theorist versus a phenomenologist, you might have quite different theoretical views, which all fall under the umbrella of qualitative research. But actually, there's some real contrasting views there. 
I think what is consistent with them all is the methods tend to be kind of similar. So they're often the data collection involves a social interaction, if you like, interviews, observation, but sometimes textual analysis too. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So I wondered what you thought about, again, we spoke offline about clearing this misconception up that I suppose in my mind, there, when I'm teaching qualitative methods or qualitative research, there are a couple of misconceptions about what it is and what it isn't. One thing that it isn't is, one thing that doesn't necessarily define it is that it just looks at subjective experiences because we can look at subjective experiences quantitatively, right? And so it's not just the necessarily the nature of the problem that you're looking at, but it's how you're looking at it. Yeah, and I, I think that's an important point. And as I've been reflecting on my journey through qualitative and quantitative as well, I, I think there's you know, often more similarities that we, you know, don't like necessarily to acknowledge the fact that, you know, quantitative research aims to be generalizable and free of bias and, and all those things and measuring objective experience. But, hmm. you know, we're, we're facing a reproducibility crisis in, in quantitative research. And there's, you know, lots of literature documenting context effects. Um, and, you know, there, there's this push to pre-register your trials and your analyses. But, you know, in day-to-day -day practice, there's a lot of p-hacking that goes on and, and phishing in, in data. And, I think that's driven a lot by, you know, researcher preconceived notions and biases and, and things like that. And I think, you know, we draw this line, this invisible line between qualitative and quantitative being like quantitative is objective and, you know, generalizable and qualitative isn't. But I think there's more overlap than we like to admit. Mm. I mean, the thing that always trips up the, the quantitative researcher, you know, the, the ones that wear the and the, the the badge that says I'm objective, real scientist, is it is that you know things like who decides to do the the statistical tests? You know, so these are human decisions. Uh, who decides the inclusion criteria or exclusion criteria? These are decisions made by people. And also, if you just give someone a table of p-values or confidence intervals or whatever it might be, they rarely speak for themselves. They require some interpretive commentary around that to, to make sense of them. So this idea of objectivity or objective research in itself is a bit of a fallacy, I think. Oh, I, I completely agree. And, and that's, you know, the idea of reflexivity um, in qualitative research is, is something I really like and really appreciate, you know, this idea that the research process is really an interaction between the researcher and the participants and knowledge is kind of produced in this interactive way. And it kind of acknowledges that research qualitative researchers will come in to a study or to an analysis with these preconceived preconceived ideas just based on their own lived experience and that that can't necessarily be parceled away and i mean i think in in quantitative research that's often considered yeah. a bad thing you know that you come in with these preconceived ideas and you're biasing the data but in qualitative it's it's not considered a bad thing, you know, as long as you kind of declare your, your views and your positions and how mm. you're approaching a topic, it, it adds to the richness of the data. For sure. And I, I've just spoken with Melanie Burks and Jay Mills, who are like grounded theory superstars. And within grounded theory, there's this notion of theoretical sensitivity, where 
your theoretical nose, if you like, or your analytical nose becomes heightened and aware and you begin to to have a good sense of what's important to your participants and the sorts of data which you might need to collect or the sorts of questions you need to ask in your interviews. And that comes from somewhere. It hasn't just appeared out of thin air that it's based on your, as you said, your own life experience, the literature you've read, all those sorts of things. So in a way it can sometimes be quite valuable and, and many grounded theorists or grounded theorists see it as a as an attribute, if you like. But of course, you can be you can go the other way that you begin to force your interpretation of the data into either existing theory or existing literature or your own views. Totally. It's it's a balance for sure. And I think that's something that all researchers, qualitative or quantitative, have to be aware of. In, in my opinion, you know, there's nothing more boring um, than a qualitative interview that follows like a standardized script and that doesn't deviate, you know, at all and doesn't ask prompts and follow up questions and explore avenues that you didn't consider. That's where the richness comes from. And when we try and force, you know, a structure or a, um, like limits around that, I think that becomes problematic. And, you know, I think from a quantitative perspective, you know, this idea that the analysis is really, the analysis or the collection of data is really shaped and formed by the review, the interviewer, the the researcher, that that can be a problem. And I, I don't see it as a problem. I think it's just characteristic of that method that, you know, if a different researcher were to do that same study, they might be asking different questions. They might, you know, find different ideas or themes um, in the interviews. And, and that's just part of, of what it is. You know, I once got a review on a manuscript on an IPA manuscript, and I'll just read it here. And it says, Due to the lack of standardization and vulnerability for different interpretations of data, please include these as methodological limitations. And, you know, I got so frustrated um, about that because it's like, it's not a limitation. It's just a characteristic of the method. Yeah. That's like saying limitation is it we've got two legs and not three legs. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And I think we should maybe dwell on why it's okay to have, for example, a, a common strategy in qualitative research is to change interview questions between interviews. So you might ask, you know, the first couple of interviews, mm -hmm. you might have a set of questions, but then decide to change them, you know, interview three, four, five, whatever. And you can imagine as a quantitative researcher, suddenly going into your, your questionnaire survey, just, well, I think I'll take that question out. Well, I'll put in a few more questions. It just blows up the reliability and validity of these, these instruments. But there's a, a good philosophical mm -hmm. reason why that's okay, is that you're interested in the multiplicity of views. But also as a, as a qualitative researcher, you are, it's participatory, right? That you are part of that construction of the data within that interview and you want to get behind those individual meanings and perspectives. So you're going to have to use different levers in terms of your questions. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when I'm reviewing a manuscript for a journal or writing my own manuscript or mentoring other students, I think something that provides kind of the richest data is, you know, providing contrasting views between participants and, and to be able to say, you know, some participants described it this way, others described it this way, you know, and to be able to show that complexity 
of experience. And, you know, if you don't change your questions throughout and say, hmm, you know, I'm wondering what your thoughts are around this based on what you may have learned earlier, you can't tap into that complexity. And maybe we can, at this point, it's good for you to tell us a bit about how you've used qualitative research in your own research and your PhD. Yeah, I mean, there are a range of different ways. My One of my main PhD papers, I did an interpretive phenomenological analysis of the experience of pain after cancer um, in children, um, in childhood cancer survivors and their parents. So in that study, I interviewed children ranging in ages from eight to 17 and their parents about what pain was like, you know, after cancer, what it meant, um, you know, did it, did it have a changed meaning? Did it not? Um, and that was a really, really rich study. It's now published in Psycho-Oncology. And then, so that was a very interpretive study that looked at the experience, the interpretation of pain. Um, and then just to contrast that, a colleague, Kyle Vader, and I participated in the International Association for the Study of Pain, um, their, you know, revised definition of pain paper. Um, and for that study, I asked, you know, elicited um, open-ended responses from the general public all over the world about, you know, what their thoughts were on the definition of pain. And so Kyle and I did a content analysis of the participant responses to the updated definition of pain. So I think, you know, those were two separate kind of ideas of this really rich theory interpretation and IPA and a more, you know, straight, direct account mm. in content analysis. And yeah, that's a really good example of the different philosophies within qualitative research that I suppose, you know, many, some would say that content analysis is underpinned by kind of post-positivism, that you're presuming that there's stuff in the data, which you can kind of, as a researcher, you can kind of reach in and grab it, if you like, and then look at the frequency or, or, or kind of develop some sort of theme or category. But yet you're using qualitative data. And I, I'm assuming you interpreted, it was a process of coding, and you reached some kind of consensus, if you like, around the meaning of those codes in the data? Yes, exactly. So it, it, it still did have an interpretive component. And I think that's something that's often missed as well is that, you know, all research, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, you know, has an element of interpretation. Um, and so, you know, there were responses from clinicians, from family members, from patients, from researchers, um, and we had to kind of figure out what people were saying and, and how those responses either fit together or didn't. And I think just on that point, this is what I meant to say was that if you had, you could equally have taken that free text, qualitative data, and you yourself or with your colleague could have looked at it and said, hmm, is this a neutral statement, strongly disagree, strongly agree, you know, strongly disagree gets one point, strongly agree gets two points, and then neutral gets zero, had a load of, you know, converted, it, if you like, to statistical numerical data, plugged it into SPSS, and it would have whacked out some some p-values or whatever that you were, you're going to use. So in that example there, that I suppose it's, I'm just trying to emphasize this misconception that qualitative data alone, so that just having textual data or free text data doesn't equal a qualitative study, that you can also just analyze that data, that qualitative data quantitatively. You can adopt a position towards that data 
and also just the collection of that survey data in free text is via MailChimp or you know some kind of questionnaire you put in a box, but you know the researcher can't get involved, can't see who puts it in. It's all distant, and as you said at the beginning about this objective, neutral observer of reality rather than a participator constructor of reality. Exactly. So it's definitely, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, like when we think of different types of qualitative research, and, you know, there there is some contention, you know, in, in the literature, like, do free text survey responses count as qualitative research? There's some people who say absolutely yes, because it's language based data, and you're going to code it. And there's some people that say no, because you don't have that interactive component. Um, Brown and Clark actually recently published a paper on open-ended responses as qualitative data, and, and they argue that, you know, it, it can certainly be, you know, I think we just, again, have to be really clear about what our objectives are and, and what we're hoping to get, like, kind of as an end product. If Kyle and I were have to assigned, you know, numbers to the responses, I think that would have mm. lost so much richness and would have lost the meaning and we were searching for meaning. And, and so that's why we elected to to take more of that qualitative approach. Completely. And if your aim had been to not search for meaning, but look for generalizable kind of patterns around meaning, for example, in a much more superficial way than you allocating numbers to it and getting some more generalizable statistics, that would be okay too. And, and as you quite rightly said, it's about the aims and the questions that you're asking I mean, to throw in even a spanner in the works around this, that I know that there are methods of grounded theory, which is a qualitative methodology, which uses numbers as the data, so quantitative data to analyze qualitatively. And so even, you know, even that begins to kind of, kind of blend the distinctions of this is what, you know, this is only qualitative, this is only quantitative. It, it's tricky. So I think it probably boils down to the, to the view or the position that the researchers take towards the data. So the data in itself doesn't characterize the nature of the research. As we both came up with examples that you can use qualitative data, analyze it quantitatively, use quantitative data, but analyze it qualitatively or take a, a position towards that data qualitatively. So I think just, I suppose, just going to again, signposting to the, to the listener that not all subjective text-based stuff constitutes qualitative research. I know what you mean. Um, you know, it, just because it's a written response doesn't mean it's qualitative research and, and vice versa. I mean, I think that dichotomy is where we sometimes run into trouble because journal editors or journal reviewers will say, oh, I saw another paper that provided frequencies, you know, of the, you know, different themes that came out of the data. Why can't you do that? You know, and like there's this assumption that because you can turn it into numbers that you should. Um, and I think something that was really eye-opening to me when I first started learning qualitative was this idea that more doesn't mean better. Like just because a theme was described by every single participant doesn't mean it's better than, you know, another theme that was only described by a few, but that was still very powerful and added meaning to the work. And so in quantitative, we're so used to being like, this was the top ranked response, this is the second top ranked response, but the same doesn't necessarily hold true to qualitative. And so maybe we can move on to, I suppose, just touching on some of the, the common methods of qualitative research. Mm -hmm. and, just give people a sense of 
the sorts of techniques that are used to to generate qualitative data and feel free to share some of your examples from your work. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few different methods that people can use. I would say the most common are, you know, just like the general semi-structured interview. I would say that's the go-to and, you know, offers the opportunity to have that interactive conversation and and co-production of meeting. But there's a lot of other methods that are really starting to pick up steam, like arts-based approaches. So, you know, having participants produce drawings or photographs, um, you know, of their experience that are then kind of analyzed. Uh, A method called object elicitation, um, where participants are shown objects, you know, that may have different meanings for them and to kind of help bring up reactions or memories. We, we had a paper um, published in the special issue, the Canadian Journal Pain Special Issue by Craig Dale and colleagues that used object elicitation to capture the experiences of individuals who um, were in the ICU and had received oral care. So they were shown different oral care objects in the interview to kind of bring up what that experience was like. You know, focus groups um, are obviously an an extension um, of interviews where you're able to kind of interview multiple people at the same time. I think what's key about focus groups that's often missed is capturing that interaction between participants, not just having like a (laughs) one-on-one with each person that's there. Observation can be done to capture qualitative data text can be analyzed. So whether those are policy documents, forms, um, social media posts, that's, you know, starting to become a hot topic area. Um, And then also kind of this newer method known as story completion to kind of capture, you know, experience and how participants view themselves and and that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, they're they're really good examples. I think the object elicitation is really interesting. And, you know, I suppose a more um, traditional way of eliciting people's thoughts and feelings and discussion is using things like vignettes, particularly if you're interested in some of the work that I've done around clinical reasoning, getting clinicians to recall how they're making decisions with patients or about patients and getting them to, to interpret certain clinical cases. So you can use you know, mm-hmm. in the, the flexibility of qualitative methods is that you can bring in various different strategies to try and generate interesting, rich discussions. I mean, that's really the purpose, isn't it? You're using all sorts of techniques, whether it's prompts, vignettes, object elicitation, to get people to get some kind of way of people communicating stuff which is inside them, inside their head, around them, and anything that you can do to to generate that rich discussion with detail, that's going to be super helpful. Absolutely. And I mean, in my work, which is mostly children, you know, like the younger kids, eight, nine years old, lots of them do really well with, you know, just typical interview questions. But I think some of these newer approaches, like the arts-based methods and object elicitation, you know, things like that, where they can really describe themselves in, in different ways that are maybe more developmentally appropriate, I think can be really powerful. And we're starting to see more of that now, which I think is great. And I think another thing which might be worth mentioning now, because I'm, I didn't, mentioned it too much in in the grounded theory episode which will be coming up is again it's a feature of qualitative research and to some extent a feature of grounded theory where there's a concurrent data collection data analysis which again contrasts with 
generally with quantitative research in which you collect all your data, get it all, stick it in a computer, and then you chuck out your numbers. And that's fine. That's kind of standard practice. But in qualitative research, not all quality research, but it'd be good practice to collect some data, do some analysis. Often your analysis then informs your future data collections. You might say, hmm, um, I'm going to change some interview questions around, actually, because these ideas or concepts or themes have cropped up in previous interviews. Or I'm going to actually going to speak to some different people. You know, it turns out that this group of people might give me some more interesting or helpful information, some data. So that concurrent data collection, data analysis is a real feature of qualitative research. And you can imagine the quantitative research is just kind of turning over in their metaphorical beds or graves. Hopefully they're not in their graves, but you know what I mean? How can you change this in the middle of the study? This is just, you just can't do it. It just you know, wrecks the, the validity of it. But the, the, the qualitative researchers are kind of sitting back with a smirk, <laughs> thinking this is all you know, logically consistent and actually contributes to more credible, meaningful research, which relates to the, to, which relates to the participants and what they see as being significant and problematic in their lives. Absolutely. And, you know, as you said, in, in quantitative, peeking at the data kind of like before the end is really frowned upon. And, you know, you have to have your analysis plan and follow the plan and don't look at it beforehand and don't change your plan and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas in, in qualitative, and I think this is also just, you know, somewhat of an artifact of the process where it's, you know, the researcher being very much an active participant in the data collection, in the interpretation. I know when I'm conducting interviews and, and things like that, I'm already starting to like think in my head, like, okay, this fits with this, this fits with that, what that person said, like, how can I ask this in a different way? Um, and so it's very interactive. And I think just by nature of that, um, your, you know, early data collection is informing your, your next data collection. And that researcher participant relationship is contingent on how you view the research field or, or reality as we come back to the beginning of the our chat. Whereas if you see reality as this stable, objective thing and you don't want to interfere with it because you want to extract the essence or the truth from that reality, the minute you start peeking at your data or you know, influencing your participant or standing over the participant's shoulder as they're filling in the questionnaire or whatever it might be, then you're going to kind of taint your own bias and judgments and values. You're going to kind of bleed into the research field and just ruin the objectivity of it. But in qualitative research, that's, you know, to be part of the, the data collection is, is seen as, like I said, as an attribute to get rich and meaningful data. Absolutely. So traditionally, healthcare and the clinical management of pain or the pain field, if you like, have relied upon quantitative research and whether these are experimental based studies or randomized control trials to look at the effects of different interventions or kind of cross-sectional work to look at generalizable kind of psychological patterns or profiles, all that kind of stuff, which is curious given that the nature of pain is this emergent subjective individual experience. We've relied upon, you know, research which takes an opposite view that that's interest in objectivity and reliability and validity. So why is it the case in your experience that qualitative research, and not necessarily why, but just any observations that you made about the proliferation of qualitative research in your field in pain psychology and the broader healthcare setting? 
Yeah. And I, you know, I will say, I think it's in the process of taking off. Um, You know, I think, you know, we're not at the point yet where the BMJ is, you know, seeing a qualitative paper as this, you know, excellent new submission. And there was that time Mm -hmm. a few years ago where they were seeking to, you know, stop reviewing qualitative papers altogether. So I think... Let's just signpost that. So the BMJ, you're right, was the hashtag was BMJ no qual, I think was the Twitter hashtag, of which they were going to stop publishing qualitative work. And then Trisha Greenhall, who's just a champion of pretty much everything qualitative research, but person-centered and evidence-based practice, got herself and a huge number of co-authors to write this letter arguing that BMJ don't make that decision. And that's some really good arguments as to why qualitative research contributes to healthcare. So I don't want to kind of flag that paper and I'll link it in the show notes. Sorry, Perry, go on. Yeah, no, no. I think, you know, that is so important. And that was a formative time, I think, in making qualitative research seen as valuable and important and, and not just, you know, talking to six of your friends about their <laughs> experience. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, you say that pain is this inherent, personal, subjective, multidimensional experience. And Ironically, these are actually words that are reflected in the IASP definition of pain. Like it's described as, you know, an emotional, personal, subjective experience. And we know from a clinical perspective that assessing and treating pain relies on people's accounts of their own experience. Like self-report is considered to be the gold standard of pain assessment. I mean, as an aside, there's, you know, a whole um, field of research now that's trying to find objective, quote unquote, ways of measuring pain through artificial intelligence and and brain imaging and, and things like that so far have not been overly successful, I think, because of this subjectivity and, and personalized experience of it. And so I think, you know, people are starting to realize that qualitative research is really well suited to provide this kind of rich personal data and brings this individual experience back to the forefront. So I think that's kind of like one side of it. I think the other side that we've seen, and this is from my experience in cancer survivorship research, um, that a lot of large randomized controlled trials have been done on, on topics that are seen to be you know, important. Um, so for instance, survivorship care plans um, are this document that are, you know, is given to patients after they complete cancer treatment that is meant to, you know, um, guide their follow-up treatment. And randomized control trials have been done kind of looking at the impact of those survivorship care plans and, and patients say that they're helpful, but all the RCTs that have been done have come out null. And so, you know, work that Robin Urquhart and others are doing are are really kind of looking at from a qualitative perspective, well, what are the outcomes that are important to patients? And are we actually measuring those outcomes in randomized controlled trials? And so I think qualitative research can really complement quantitative research in that way. You know, we've poured millions of dollars into these RCTs that come up with null results. Why? because we're not measuring things, you know, that are important to patients. And so I think qualitative research really gives us that opening into what, what is important to people? Mm. How do we capture that? And that's a really good point. And it's a good segue into how qualitative research and quantitative research can work together. And this either or 
argument that one's better than the other, or we're certainly not advocating to scrap quantitative research and just let qualitative research dominate evidence-based care, but but certainly using qualitative research to either inform randomized control trials might be one way of, you know, so to try and establish what are the outcomes which are important to my participant group. But also, as I've said in, in previous episodes of the Cause Health series about using qualitative work to contextualize the findings of randomized control trials, so either nesting them in within the trial themselves, so you get a kind of three-dimensional picture, I suppose, or understanding of the entire research phenomenon, not just a single quantitative perspective. Exactly. And, you know, I've heard from patients um, and participants that they really enjoy participating in, in qualitative research. And part of that being because, you know, because they don't feel like they're just a number in mm-hmm. an RCT, for example, and that they're you know, ratings of anxiety or their ratings of pain aren't just captured on a zero to 10 scale. And, you know, a lot of patients with pain, especially chronic pain, describe that it's hard to describe their pain on a zero to 10 scale. It's not zero to 10. Like, Mm -hmm. and that scale was developed, you know, to measure acute pain and has now been kind of transferred to the chronic pain setting. And, if they're participating in a research study and it asks, you know, in the past seven days on average, you know, how bad has your pain been zero to 10? It's like, they want to talk about what it's been like and what it's felt like. And there's been ups and downs and whatever. And it's hard to just assign a number to that. And so it can help kind of build that context and and help patients kind of validate their experience. And I think that's, again, it's it's a good point just to pick up on about the presumptions the different presumptions that the qualitative and quantitative research will take. So if we imagine we're looking at, I mean, pains in, I suppose, an obvious example, but even if it's something like disability, which so not necessarily pain, and you've got a, a questionnaire or some kind of instrument which has a series of items which look to you know, make statements around how pain is affecting someone's daily life. Within those questions on the questionnaire, there is assumed meaning when it says, do you find it hard to walk up the stairs? It assumes that, you know, people, when they read hard, strongly agree or disagree, whatever the Likert scale is, when it said, when the word hard is there, there's no room for the participant to say, well, it's not really hard. <laughs> it's this or it's that. And this is how it's mm-hmm. hard. They've got no room. Or to say, well, for me, it's not hard. Actually, what do you mean by hard? There's no capacity within that methodology, within quantitative research, to assume those multiplicity of meanings, that there's a single meaning. It presumes that there's an objective meaning. And that's fine. You were looking for somewhat superficial understanding of this notion of walking up the stairs. It's hard to walk up the stairs with whatever back pain. Whereas in a qualitative study, coming back to the interview, when someone says, oh, I find it really hard to walk up the stairs. As a, as a researcher, you can say, that's really interesting. What did you mean by hard? Can you give me some examples? It's interesting you used the word hard there. Tell me a bit more about that. And they might then say, well, actually, I didn't mean hard or what I mean by hard is whatever. So you get a completely different, a completely different perspective on that phenomenon of hard. It's, it's a very individual interpretation of it, which can be really helpful for clinicians. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that type of example actually came up in in one of my qualitative studies, the one that was part of my doctoral research. 
Lauren Heathcote and Chris Eccleston and colleagues had, had come out with this new theoretical model of pain after cancer, suggesting, you know, that pain might be interpreted as a, a sign of disease recurrence. And, and that's why it, it might be troubling or, you know, attention grabbing, you know, for, for people. And so I, you know, incorporated some questions into my interview guide about, you know, what does pain mean? Like when you have pain, you know, what comes to mind? And it's interesting because for a lot of kids that I interviewed, they said, yeah, like I worry when I have pain, but it's not quite about, you know, that the cancer had come back. It's, it's slightly different than that. It's that, you know, maybe, it's that I'm developing a late effect of my treatment. Or, you know, a lot of kids would say, mm, I don't think it's that my cancer had come back because my doctor told me that there's a really low chance that my, my cancer would come back, but I'm at high risk for a secondary cancer. So, you know, I think yeah. that it might be that. And so getting that nuance um, that you wouldn't necessarily get otherwise. Yeah, so not only do you get that individual the individual meaning that that person holds for you know, whatever the phenomenon you're looking at, but you get a sense of how that meaning arises, like where does it come from? And, you know, as you said, there'll be some mm -hmm. whole lot of contextual story-based stuff around that, which a, a questionnaire, no matter how well-developed, is unable to capture that individual reality, if you like, that subjective reality that the participant has. And as a qualitative researcher, you fully appreciate mm -hmm. and a part of that construction of that reality exactly i suppose on a related point is and again off the back of this series of podcasts with philosophers of causation around the role of quality research in evidence-based healthcare that there's a big and as we mentioned with trisha greenhall there's a ongoing conversation about the role of qualitative research in evidence-based medicine or healthcare or practice and just to give a quick whistle-stop tool that there's a pyramid or hierarchy of evidence or knowledge which puts quantitative research usually in the form of randomized controlled trials or meta-analyses at the top and expert opinion and qualitative research essentially in the in the bottom particularly around if we're, look, if we're talking about evidence for interventions if you like perhaps you could say something about how you see the role of qualitative research in relation to evidence-based practice I, I will admit, you know, I'm not a research methodologist when it comes to evidence-based medicine. I did train at McMaster University for my undergraduate degree, and that's kind of where Gordon Guyatt and, and folks kind of developed evidence-based medicine. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a really important question. And I don't know if I fully have the answer. I'll just share some thoughts, you know, that I've been kind of mulling on. I've done 15 episodes and no one had the answer. So, so don't worry. This is just a, <laughs> another another answer. Well, actually, the course health people do have their answer, but you're contributing to the, the range of different answers. Okay, very good. You mentioned the hierarchy of evidence with kind of systematic reviews and randomized control trials at the top and expert opinion, case series and experience kind of being at the bottom. But I think what's interesting is that in, you know, the traditional hierarchies that appear in epidemiology textbooks, qualitative research actually wouldn't even be on the pyramid at all. And 
when we think about what evidence-based medicine really is about, it's about this integration of what the best evidence is with clinical expertise and patient values. And so, you know, I think that's exactly where qualitative research can fit in. It's, you know, kind of building that, you know, idea of what, what is important to patients, you know, how do I incorporate that into the clinical decision-making? Um, and so I think, you know, as we were saying that qualitative and quantitative research can complement each other, I think that's exactly true in evidence-based practice as well, that we're using, you know, some mm-hmm. of the randomized control trials and, and things like that to inform, you know, the effects of drug X or intervention X, but then what's the patient experience of that and, and how does that fit in? Because that will help you make judgments about how you use that quantitative research. So if you've got a you know, there's good qualitative data about how, as we said, what's important to patients or how they're conceptualizing their problem or how they're coping, you know, not just they are coping or they're not coping or they're coping to this extent, but actually some real rich contextual stories about patients' lives, which is then analyzed in a way to create more abstract qualitative narratives. As a clinician, you're, you're going to be in a much better place to to utilize those randomized control trials and quantitative methods or quantitative studies. Exactly. And I mean, I think there's so many ways that it could fit in. Like, you know, for example, I think having that, that personal narrative, that story is helpful for, I think even just building empathy and context and validation in, you know, the clinician for for what patients might be going through. I think it might give clinicians ideas, you know, on questions to ask that they might not have otherwise thought to ask things, you know, that they might want to tell patients about in terms of what symptoms they might experience and kind of normalizing that. I think sometimes clinicians can be nervous or afraid to like bring certain difficult topics up. And I think in qualitative research, time and time again, whether it's, you know, in the disability field or in the cancer field or in the pain field, you know, patients say like, I want to know, like, you know, ask me that kind of thing. And so I think, you know, it just provides permission to do some of that harder stuff. Mm. And many of the strategies that when you're doing a, a qualitative interview, an interview as part of a qualitative study when you're interested in really getting the getting getting the most out of the participant sounds and not right but but trying to get mm-hmm. rich data and trying to find those underlying meanings underlying beliefs contextual kind of social aspects in clinical practice you're kind of trying to you're trying to get the same understanding i mean it's the same but not the same but at least a good understanding of that person and so be able to take a position where this is an individual with a particular perspective and I recognize that individual perspective and want to try and understand it. These are similar positions, both in clinical practice and as a qualitative interviewer or researcher. I, I, I completely agree. And I think it's interesting because coming from a clinical psychology background, the participant interview could look very similar to a session that you would have with a client where it's trying to understand their history, where their beliefs come from, you know, how they make sense of certain situations. Um, So I think on one hand, you know, as clinicians, especially psychologists, 
you know, we're really well positioned to be able to elicit this rich data um, from participants. On the other side, you know, of the coin, I think it's important that we're also careful to, to keep that boundary of patient versus participant. And I think, you know, that line can become very, very thin, especially when you're talking about difficult things and you want to provide empathy and validation and, mm. you know, that kind of thing. And I think that's, you know, a challenge that's unique to clinicians who are conducting qualitative research and, and something that's perhaps not talked about enough. I suppose we could begin to bring this together. And if there were a series of tips or advice for clinicians or researchers, either I think, you know, we can tackle them all together, either clinicians who are too afraid to look at qualitative studies because it's too mysterious and philosophical and too different from the quantitative research, or uh, and or researchers which are only familiar with quantitative methods but are kind of slightly interested in doing some qualitative work. What bits of advice might you give based on your own experience? Ooh, there's a lot of advice. I'll, I'll try <laughs> and break it down. Um, I mean, I think number one is, you know, kind of on both sides of the coin is just to really keep an open mind. You know, I think from a quantitative perspective, we're so used to viewing truth and reality in a certain way and vice versa on the qualitative side. And sometimes there can become like turf wars about, you know, which side is better and there is no better side. I think we need to work together to really tackle some of these big problems that we're facing that that need both um, methods to come together. I think, you know, something that is so important for for people starting off in qualitative research is really to understand the theoretical lens that you're coming at the work from, whether it's a phenomenological lens, mm. and if so, what kind, whether it's a feminist lens, whether it's, you know, an ethnography, like, what lens are you coming at the work from? Um, it, to really understand that, that I think, you know, helps build credibility, rigor um, in the work. Mm when I kind of talk about my background, like I come from a more quantitative background. And when I was starting to learn about qualitative research, I think something that was really confusing to me and that I think is to a lot of people is that there's a difference between the methodology and the method, you know, and it's like you have to have a theoretical lens guiding your work. It's not enough to say in the method section, we did a qualitative study, you know, and I think that's what gives qualitative research a bad name in a lot of areas. Exactly. And I yeah, and, and like, or, or in the method saying, I did some coding. Coding was performed on the data, which is fine, but like coding through what lens? Like what were you coding for? Totally, totally. Um, don't be afraid about small sample sizes. You know, I think that's something that a lot of people feel worried about. Like, oh, I'm only interviewing six people. You know, is a journal going to want to publish this I think if you're true to your theoretical lens and that you're using that to help guide um, your sample size then then that's absolutely fine and then I think from you know the field as a whole I think we need to start embracing qualitative research a little bit more having more journal editors uh, reviewers um, you know who are competent in qualitative methods um, to be able to, you know, fairly and accurately um, review whether it's grants or papers or, or things like that. Because I think that is a really big barrier to qualitative publication, but also career advancement for people in this area. 
they're great tips. And I think on that point, I suppose for me, I would say for clinicians especially, to reflect on how they see themselves as clinicians. So it doesn't seem to make too much sense that when you're a clinician, you're person-centered, you're interested in the individual, you recognize the the range of different beliefs and perspectives that your patients hold, you value that. And and I doubt there'd be many clinicians that would, would see themselves as kind of objective scientific robots performing the same interventions on patients that they would i'm sure many most clinicians would see themselves as adapting and changing their approach to suit the individual need to the person but then when it comes to research the sorts of research that many clinicians value is the opposite of their clinical position which is objective you know everyone gets the same treatment or asks the same questions it's distant it's dispassionate and so i think just reflecting on how clinicians see practice if you see practice as this complex person-centered ambiguous kind of conception then we need research which is flexible and able to access those different perspectives and realities and those complexities and nuances and all that kind of stuff absolutely and just to dovetail off of that as kind of a final point as i think we need to think about that from a policy perspective as well, because what does policy favor? Well, it favors randomized control trials that show positive effects. And, you know, if you're in a clinic and you're wanting to implement, you know, a certain treatment and your clinic operates on an evidence-based medicine model, you know, they're going to want proof that, you know, the, the, the treatment that you're doing is going to work and not to say that we should discount that, but I think we need to, to bring in the patient centered aspect as well, bring back the lived experience, bring this kind of humanity kind of aspect back to the work that we're doing. Yeah. And I think just to dovetail off your dovetail, I think it would be a, I suppose a signpost readers to Trisha Greenhall and her colleagues work on real evidence-based medicine so where she brings in essentially this paradigm shift if you like and or at least returning to how evidence-based medicine was you know, originally intended which is to serve patients not to to serve you know practitioners if you like or or, or other kind of stakeholders perry that's awesome thank you so much no problem thank you for having me If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.